0: reading this morning is from Galatians chapter 4 verses 1 through 11. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world, whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and season and years. I am afraid I may have labored over you in vain. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Well, if you would have a seat this morning and uh, pray with me, just that God would bless his word this morning. Father, you have spoken to us by your word. Lord, would you bless it? Would you give us clarity? And would you give us conviction in it? And Lord, would you conform us to the one true word, your son, Jesus, who is the exact imprint of your nature and who is the full revelation of you in your righteousness. Lord, we thank you so much for speaking to us. Let us hear and listen this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, the last few weeks, uh, we've really been marching through a lot of the same material, and we've been trying to extract some really specific lessons from each one of these passages. And last week, we learned a little bit about who we are in relationship to Christ so we learned a little bit about who we are as it relates to Christ. And here's what I can tell you. I needed it. Not, not just for what we talked about last year, but uh, I found myself uh, uh, nearly 15 years married and uh, 38 years, and so we're, we're very uh, much in that middle age season of life where it's just like, God, tell me who I am. Like, let me know who I am. There's a lot of people that just uh, talk about in their 30s, like, I'm, I'm still waiting to figure out what and who I'm going to be when I grow up, and I I feel a little bit of that. I wonder if you do too, but last week what we learned was our identity in Christ. We learned that we were sons of God in Christ, we were baptized into Christ, we put on Christ, we were unified with other believers in Christ, and that we are Christ. And if all of those things are true about you, at the very end we learned that then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs, According to promise. That's what we learned. We learned over the last few weeks that this promise keeping God is made us heirs of His. And here in verse 1, Paul returns to this idea of heir this, this person who is a child. And in verse 38, it says that the uh, law was our guardian until a time. And so uh, there in verse 1, that's where we're going to pick up this morning, And, and we're going to learn something about ourselves. We're going to learn that sons do not return to slavery. Sons do not return to slavery. If you become an heir, if you become a son of God, if you are a son or daughter of God, you don't return back to your previous slavery. That's what Paul is going to get at this morning. But he's gonna take a very different route, one that I think will surprise you, one that I hope actually captivates in some ways your imagination this morning. Because the first thing that we've gotta learn this morning about sons not returning to slavery is that demons love legalism. Demons love legalism. The second thing we've gotta learn is that that God sent his son in spirit and that that has something to do with this legalism. And then the last thing that we've got to learn is that sons live in liberty. So that's kind of the uh, path that we're taking this morning. First, we must understand something. We must understand the subtle and sneaky relationship between demons and the law. You might be like, man, I don't get that at all. So here's the first thing that we're going to learn. And it's going to take most of our time, actually, to learn this first point. But it's really, really good Demons love legalism. Now, you may say, I just read the passage. I read it along with Sawyer. I heard it. I heard it. I didn't see anywhere in that passage where there were demons. And you know what? Not only do I not see demons in this passage, I don't, day in and day out, see demons in my real life. Okay? That, that may be true, but I want to convince you this morning that demons love legalism. So, let's, let's get all on the same page about who demons are. What are demons? Demons are these uh, evil, merciless, life-destroying spirits who oppose God and his work and oppose his people. That's what a demon is. It's an evil spirit that actually opposes what God is doing and opposes, this morning we will learn, what God is doing in you. The Lord took them deathly seriously. Jesus took them deathly seriously. But we have, if we can be honest, a hard time taking them seriously. When was the last time that you even thought about, talked about demons? It's not a part of our, like, regular day in and day out conversation. I'm imagining that maybe a demon conversation happened in the Friedrichs household recently. Yeah, that happened. I had a conversation this week, actually, with Anthony about demons. We talked a little bit about who they are, but it's not necessarily a part of our, like, normal everyday, like, interaction. It's not necessarily the way that we think about the world. John Piper really helped me understand a lot of what I'm about to uh, say this morning, not just the exposition of Scripture, but why it is that we don't necessarily think a lot about demons. And he says this, he says that it's because we don't see many of the overt spiritual outcroppings that we normally associate with demonic activity. So if, if all you've got to think about is like the Exorcist movie from years ago, you're going to have a hard time necessarily like attaching that to your normal everyday life. And here's what I want to tell you. Me too. I've only as a pastor ever been in one situation that I think it was likely that there was just an overt outcropping, as John Piper puts it, uh, like uh, you know, situation where it seemed like there was demonic activity happening, and it was in Ethiopia. But we don't see it a lot here in the West, and I'm going to propose to you that there's a reason why that is. I think that it's because there is something more subtle, more nuanced, more sneaky, maybe even more egregious going on here in our context. but. That demons are no less real. And here's my plea for you this morning. My plea for you this morning is that if you reject the work and the reality of demons, then you have to also reject the counsel of both Jesus and his apostles. How, How do we know that? We know that because Jesus said this about demons. He said, if I, by the finger of God, cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. So, so if I, if Jesus is saying, if I go around casting out demons, then you can know for certain that there are kingdom-oriented things that are happening. Even more that the kingdom has actually come upon you. Paul goes on to say this, he says that we struggle not against flesh and blood, but against rulers and against authorities, against cosmic powers over the present darkness, against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. He actually says, Paul is counseling us, that if we think about the things that we struggle we're not thinking about demons, you're not understanding what's going on. If you're part of some culture war that's out there like railing against what's going on in different segments of the culture, and you're not thinking about it in terms of spiritual warfare. You don't have it right, according to Paul. We see Peter say this. He says that your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And John says that every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which is now in the world. That's what John says. So if we reject just carte blanche, The idea that there is real demonic activity happening here, today, we're not taking the full counsel of Jesus, and we're not taking seriously the apostles that say that it is in God's Word. So, it follows that we must take demons seriously and discerningly, so the question that we've got to ask is, where do we see this? How do we see this? Where do we see it in the Word? I'm going to convince you this morning that it's here in this text. I want you to visit verse 8 with me. It says, "Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. Those probably could be better translated as those beings. Not just things. There's a lot of different ways that uh, Paul could have actually said this, but he's actually referring to something out there, beings that are not gods. And and, and let me admit, in this one particular passage, if that's all we had to go on, it would be a little cryptic. I wouldn't build so much into this. So instead, what I want to do is actually go to 1 Corinthians chapter 8, starting in verse 5. You can join with me there because it's going to be an important passage for us. Again, that's 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 5. He has something to say about this. Therefore... As to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence. So idols, these like figurines and things like that, that people would have bowed down to have no real existence, and that there is no God but one. So here's what he's saying there. He's saying right before verse 5 that... Paul has a very hard time calling idols gods. That would have been the common vernacular of the day is to talk about these things as gods. And he's saying there's no such thing as these idols being called gods. But then he actually corrects and just adds a footnote in here. He said, for although there are many so-called gods... In heaven and on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords. So, so here's here's the one little stepping stone that I want us to take this morning. In the Greek, Paul is using the same language that he used in Galatians, in First Corinthians with the First Corinthians church. And what he's saying is is that there are these idols, there are these fake gods, false gods out there, and you got to take them seriously. We can even he doesn't like calling them that. But they're there. You might go, well, that doesn't prove anything. What I want you to do is turn one page over to chapter 10. Look at verse 20 with me. What do I imply then? That food offered, so he's still on the same topic, that the food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No. So he's, he's continuing on saying, hey, there are no such things as these gods. So what are they? No, I imply that pagans sacrifice uh, that what pagan sacrifice they offer to demons and not to gods. I do not want you to be participants with demons, okay? So, so I want to track back and, like, you know, just say this plainly. This is kind of where I'm getting. This is not just my idea. I don't want you to think that, like, I'm just reading this into the text, okay? If you go to the ESV Study Bible, if you go to people like John Piper, they're going to look at verse 8, in the fourth chapter of Galatians, and they're going to say that the word those is referring to beings that are not gods. And we've got to have found that because what Paul is saying to the Galatians, he's also said before in the same exact language to the Corinthian church saying, hey, listen, we're not going to call these things gods because they're not gods. They're idols. And if you really want to know the truth about these false gods, You need to know that when people make sacrifices to them, when they obey them, when they uh, seek out to, like, live amidst the pagan religion that surrounds these idols, what are they doing? Are they serving false gods? No. What they're offering is not to something, some little trinket on a shelf. They're offering it to demons. There's demonic activity. Where there are idols, there is demonic activity. And that's where we're going this morning is that demons love legalism. Maybe even said a little different way, demons love religion. Okay, so let's get back in the text. The reason that the language here is confusing is because Paul is trying to get at a subtle but dangerous truth, one of the stealthy, most deadly ways that demons work is to deceive through religious trappings. That that doesn't sit with what we would normally think of. We would think that demons would normally try to pull you away as far as they could from religion. They would try to get you away from religion. They would try to get you as far from the idea that there is anything outside of this world that we see, and certainly demons do do that. They do try to pull you in that direction, but maybe even more egregiously, maybe even more subtly, maybe even more dangerously, they try to trap you in the midst of religion. And this is why Paul is actually going to use a lot of different language, trying to bundle in a lot of things, a lot of ways for us to think about this. Look back at verse 3. It says, when we were children. Now, remember from last week, this is not when we were, like, young children. Like, it's not talking about physical age. It's talking about before the time that faith came. Okay, you can read back through that. You can listen to last week's sermon. This is not a literal use of the word children. But when we were children, before faith came, we were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. And then if you scroll down, To verse nine. I'm sorry for using the word scroll. You can just look at it on the pages of Scripture. At verse nine, you can see how can you turn back to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world. There are two places in Scripture where this phrase is used: elementary principles. Only two, so we don't get a whole lot in Scripture to really understand what these are. What I would tell you is, is that Paul is using really specific, really strategic language to get at what he's trying to convey to the Galatians and to us. What we want to understand from this is that they are elementary principles of the world. And he's saying that when you were children, you were enslaved, and he said that why now After faith, would you turn back to those weak and worthless elementary principles of the world? You're going to be enslaved to them. So he uses that phrase, and he talks about enslavement in both verse 3 and verse 9. So there is something about the connection between those two verses as they relate to verse 8 that helps us understand what we're looking at. Here's what I'll tell you. You can translate elementary principles in a way that also talks about them as elementary spirits. And there's lots of different ways of understanding this idea of elementary principles or elementary spirits, okay? You could read this as being like, hey, these are just the fundamentals of life. They're the fundamentals. The Greek in here would talk about them almost as if they're ABCs, okay? So just the basic things of life. Okay, so you could read it as saying like, hey, Paul's just talking about like the basic building blocks of life. But he also uses the word enslavement. And he's not talking about children, like physical children. He's talking about us as we have come into faith. So maybe it's not ABCs. You could also read this as being the law. The elementary, just the elementary spirit. In context, this passage is actually talking and working through, hey, listen, when you were young, maybe, especially as a Jew, you would have been uh, kind of enslaved by this law, this elementary principle. The basic building blocks of your faith are going to be found in the Ten Commandments and the other 600 laws that there are. You're going to know something about the law. So it may be talking about the law. I think that it is, partially, partially or it may also be talking about these elementary spirits. You see, in in ancient times, they would have talked about these spirits just in kind of natural everyday life. They didn't have an understanding necessarily of like, uh, you know, bacterial biology. They didn't have an understanding of all of like the uh, natural world physics of, you know, uh, cause and effect. And so they would have described a lot of these things using elementary principles as this idea that the spiritual world is kind of holding all of these things in place, and if you do this, then this happens because there are kind of these spiritual forces at work that make it happen. Or they could be referring literally to spirits, these things that are at work in this war that's being waged around us that is not yet seen. Here's what I'll tell you. I think that the ABCs, I think I would, I would exclude that one from it, but I don't think we have to to understand that Paul is using really specific language to try to get at something that includes the law, it includes the natural sense of consequences, and it also includes spirits. How do I say that? Because verse 8 is talking, I believe, about spirits, about evil spirits, And so he's tying all of them together by using similar language. Remember that many of these Galatians were coming to Christ out of pagan religions, not Judaism. And that's an important point here, because if you want to just understand that what Paul is saying is, hey, listen, before... When you were a child before faith came, you were enslaved to the elementary principles. And if you only read that as law, you have to then account for the fact that many of these Galatians weren't born underneath the Judaism uh, legalistic law. They weren't born underneath that. So he's got to be talking about something in addition to that. So even though they were born in these pagan religions, they were still under the law. We know that in Galatians chapter 3, verse 22, Paul tells us that the law imprisoned everything. Now, what's included in everything but all things? It would have included these Galatians that were following pagan religions. So I'm not saying that they were apart from the law. They were still held captive by the law. Why? Because the law imprisoned everything, not just Jews, but everyone. There was a standard of righteousness that enslaved all things, everything. At the same time, I think that we can also understand this passage saying this, that maybe the law did... uh, Imprison everything under sin so that the promise of faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. But we can also say that demons were hard at work through those pagan religions that the Galatians had been entrapped to in their religious traditions and ceremonies and rituals and offerings and feasts and fasts before. Have you followed me there? So it doesn't matter if you're talking about a Jew who was enslaved as a child underneath the law. And it doesn't matter if you're talking about a Galatian who was more likely entrapped by religious followings in pagan religions. Both of them had religious trappings that necessitated following certain works of tradition and ceremony. How do we see that? Look down at verse 10. It says, you observe days and months and seasons and years. Now, did he say it that way? In the Greek, is it that way? Look at that exclamation mark that is probably in most of y'all's copies of Scripture. It says, you observe days and months and seasons and years. He's furious. Paul is actually angry at them for following these kinds of traditions. Who had convinced them to follow these kinds of traditions? Who was it? It was the Judaizers. From, from weeks past, that's, it's, it's the Judaizers that had come in as false teachers… And they're convincing them to follow the law. And one of the elements of that was not just circumcision, that these uh, Judaizers were trying to convince them to take up and to practice as a part of the expression of their faith, but also the thing that they needed to do to be saved. He He also tries to include in the rebuke of them the following of days and months and feasts and fasts that were part of the religious ceremony. These Judaizers had been saying, hey, if you want to be a real follower of God, you've got to follow all the rules. You've got to follow all the feasts. And Paul is furious about it because he knows what's behind it. I'm going to tie two things here together, okay? These pagan religions would have had feasts and festivals. They would have had days and months and all kinds of religious trappings. And here Paul is saying, you've got this wicked group of teachers coming in that says, if you want to know God, if you want to be one of his people, if you want to be called, you've got to follow all of these things. And I would have loved to have been there when these Judaizers heard Paul rebuking them and saying, you're teaching people to follow things just like the pagan religion they were called out of. Do you think that that would have infuriated the legalistic Judaizers? I think so. I'll be honest, I think that even the, uh, the discussion around this kind of freedom from feasts and festivals and everything might ping some of our own hearts of just going, well, you can't possibly be, mean that. We're supposed to Sabbath. My family, we take, you know, Saturday off. We just completely, we have to do it. It's part of how we follow God, okay? Are you earning your salvation with it? Do you have a day? Now listen to what I'm not saying. I'm not saying don't follow a Sabbath principle. I think that that's healthy. I think that it's good. I think God in some sense uh, shows us in creation that uh, he needed a day for rest and just contemplation and gratitude. And then he commands his people, do this. And uh, the guardian and the the schoolmaster and the, the tutor is telling us, hey, this is a good thing for you. But if you're trying to earn your salvation by keeping a day, you're being a legalist, just like these Judaizers. Okay, so what is he trying to tell us here? He's saying that demons love for you to keep a law. They even love for you to keep God's law, provided you're doing it under your own work and that you're trying to earn your own salvation through it. Paul has already been clear. If you're going to live under the law, you're going to be judged by the law. Do not live under the law. Do not be justified by the law. Do not seek your salvation in and through the law. That's what he's telling us. Don't follow the rules in order for you to earn your salvation. Why? Because demons love it when you try to seek your justification, your worth, your identity by rule-keeping. They love it. So you can take even good parts of the law. We can take the Ten Commandments as we've done the last few weeks and you can look at them and you can say, thou shalt have no other gods before me. Is that a good law to keep? It's absolutely a good law to keep. Thou shalt not bear false witness. Thou shalt not uh, covet thy neighbor's wife. Those are good rules to keep. Why? Because they're going to lead to life and love. They're going to lead to enjoyment of God the Father. They're going to give you access to uh, just uh, endless amounts of feeling the Father's love and affection by leading a holy life. But if you're trying to earn anything in and through those losses, being kept. You're being deceived. You're at least deceiving yourself, and you might be being deceived by demons. Nothing would make demons happier than to see you reject the free gift of grace in Jesus and start following the law. So, so we've been talking a lot about the law the last few uh, weeks, We've been talking a lot about how we are no longer entrapped or enslaved by the law. But I want to ask you this morning to consider what laws are you trying to keep? What things are you trying to do to earn God's love and affection, to earn your salvation? And then I want you to flip a switch in your mind and ask, I wonder if I'm being deceived Maybe even by demons. You you see, we live in a society where where we may not be seeing a uh, young lady, a a teenager, who won't keep her clothes on and is hurting herself and others because there is a demon literally oppressing her. We may not see that. You might. Uh, More than likely in our culture, we're going to tidy that up a bit and say that person's struggling from mental illness. It made me to neglect some of the spiritual rump, but you're probably not going to see that on a day-to-day life. But you know what I think we do see a lot, maybe not just in this church, but across Christendom, is legalists who love to ensnare and trap you and who want you to start trying to earn your way to God. I'll bet that you see it. So I'll ask you again. Do you think that there are demons around us moving and working through even our thoughts, our emotions, our affections, working through our social media accounts, working through our expectations of our spouse, working through the uh, glare and glance of a person that is judging you and then trying to earn their affections and desires, trying to earn God's actual approval, trying to self-atone, try to make yourself self-righteous? I wonder if you see that. If you do, consider the fact it might actually be the most wicked and insidious demonic activity this world knows. I wonder if we can put on kingdom glasses to be able to see this insidious, life taking, soul hollowing legalism for what it truly is. It's wicked. So what I want to do real fast is actually go back uh, to uh, chapter 3 real quick. You can actually uh, search that out with me in Galatians chapter 3, and we're going to pick up in uh, verses 2 through 5. It says this, let me ask you only this, did you receive the Spirit? Now, notice that's a capital S right there. That's talking about the Holy Spirit. By works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit? Are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does not he who supplies the Spirit to you and work miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Here's what I see, the two words that I see actually emphasize there and in verse 10 are this, that there is a spirit and that he is asking the question. Paul is asking the question, I'm afraid that I have labored in vain because you've started following these Judaizers. What we need to understand is, In the midst of this demonic legalism that might surround us, might even be in your own heart, but certainly Paul was seeing there amongst the Galatians is this. God sent his son in spirit. That's the good news today. So if if talking about demons raises your anxiety level, if it's something that actually increases your heart rate, know and understand that you are not beheld to demons. Why? Because God sent He sent his son in spirit. Paul may be worried that his labor is in vain, but you know whose labor is never in vain? God's. Absolutely, 100%. Look at the word but, starting verse four. But when the fullness of time had come, I love that phrase, use it a lot. My kids ask me all the time, when are we gonna be there? What are we gonna, when is this gonna happen? In the fullness of time. It will happen in the fullness of time. God, knowing when the fullness of time had come, God sent He sent forth His Son, born of a woman under the law. We see in this last chapter, we discuss how a covenant has been ratified. And when a covenant is ratified, that it cannot be changed. God's covenant with us cannot be changed. But neither can the righteous standard of the law be repealed or annulled or deemed unenforceable. So... God, seeing that he made all of these promises to us that he intends to keep, that he's going to send his king, that he's going to reveal his kingdom, he sends his son. God makes good on his promise. So God sent his son, born of a woman, flesh and blood. That's what you need to get out of here. He was a real human, and he was born under the law's demands. So so what do we get by that? So all of these Judaizers are saying, hey, you've got to follow the law. And what Paul is saying is that you can't do it, that it may even be demonic for you to try, but you know who can do it? God's son. So he sent his son, born of a woman, just like you and I. So his keeping of the law was not some just, like, well, of course he did. He was, he was God. He was also born of a woman, flesh and blood, and he was born under the law. He was not over the law. He came not, not over the law. He actually came under the law. This is going to be important. Why? Because of why he came under the law. Verse 5, it said that he came under the law to redeem those. Who are those? They're us, the slaves who were born and entrapped under the law also. He came in in his secret mission To save slaves, he was born to redeem those under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Do do you remember verses uh, 1 through 3? I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave... Though he is the owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles. And here we see that though we were born under the law, God sent his son under the law to redeem those people who were under the law. So Jesus the Son of God the Father, is sent to be a slave under the law to redeem us. Verse 6, and because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So demons love legalism, but God's answer to that is to send his Son and to send His Spirit. He sends His Son, born of a woman, under the law to complete and fulfill the law so that we don't have to be workers, so that we don't have to work for our righteousness, so that we don't have to earn our righteousness. But He doesn't just send Jesus to live under the law and to redeem us, to redeem the slaves that were under the law. He also gives his, the Spirit of His Son, the Holy Spirit. Where? Into your heart. You receive this adoption as sons through Jesus. We, we learned that last week. He's reemphasizing it. This week, you are a son or daughter because of Jesus. But then the Spirit shows up working amidst what Jesus Christ has already done. And he changes your heart. And how does he change your heart? What does he want your heart to do? To cry out, Abba, Father. I wonder if you hear the intimacy of what he is saying here, that you have received this adoption as as a son or daughter, and then you receive the Spirit to know that you are a son or daughter. I wonder if you know this morning that you are a son or daughter of the great King, that God has redeemed you from under the law through his son and then adopted you into his family. Do you know it? And because you are sons, God sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So God sends Jesus to make us sons, and now that we are sons, he sends, a Spirit, uh, sends the Spirit into our hearts. Would you join me in Romans chapter 8, verses 14? We see this same language picked up in, the, in Paul's letter to the Romans. It says this, For all who were led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our Spirit. Did you hear what just happened? The Spirit of God comes into our heart and then bears witness, confirms the witness that we also are children of God. And what does it do? It helps us to cry out to God the Father, to know that he is our Father, and not just some distant, like, relative, but like, Abba, Father. That's what the Spirit is doing. The Spirit of God himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Do you hear the wonderful thing that God has done for you? What we need to understand is that the Spirit bears witness with our spirit so that we might live in liberty. You see, demons love legalism. So God sent his Son and spirit so that we might live in liberty. You need to hear this this morning. This is the primary point. Sons do not return to religious, legalistic, works-based slavery under the law. You can't do it. Okay, If you have become an heir, you don't return to slavery. That's how mindless that is. If you're wondering how much sense it doesn't make to be legalistic, if you step into a church in the future or if we ever become a church that is hyper-legalistic, there should be something inside of you that says, this is not right. I live as a child of God. I am liberated, for freedom I am free, Verse, uh, chapter 5 tells us. For all who are in the Spirit are freed from the law. We live freed by faith, freed by the person of faith to live lives of freedom and liberty. Before faith came, you, you were a child, no different than a slave, under a guardian to the elemental spirits of the world. Then the son came and he freed you, making you an heir and giving you the spirit of adoption. And when you get the spirit of adoption, you inherit the kingdom. That, that's what these, this whole set of verses is trying to convince you. Week after week, I know that we're using a lot of the same language. And it's because Paul is trying to plead with you in the spirit to know that you are a son or daughter of the high king. That's what he's trying to get you to see. Please do not return to slavery. Why? Because sons cannot live in in slavery. Galatians is about freedom. It's about the life that we have in the Spirit. In fact, chapter 5 and chapter 6, I'm so excited to get to because chapter 5 starts with what I just told you. I've been looking forward to the sermon that I get to preach where he goes, for freedom you are free. Like that's, the, that's, to me, it is just the climax of the entire book of Galatians because when I look at my own heart, when I look at the people in this church, I do see in subtle ways where we're trying to slip back on those handcuffs. It may not be legalism. It might be one of a million other idols. But what I do want for our church to hear is that you've been set free, not so that you can go back in under bondage, but so that you can live with an internal inheritance forever and ever and that you might be free. I don't want you to feel enslaved to anything here on this earth. To the extent that you are a servant, be a servant of Christ. Be a bondservant of Christ. How do we apply this? Very briefly, I want to ask the questions, how do we live in spiritual liberty? What does spiritual liberty look like? And I only have three very brief points. We live in gratitude, we live in redemption, and we live in intimacy. Intimacy. We live in gratitude, we live in redemption, and we live in intimacy. If we have been saved by grace through faith, then it is not of your own doing. It is not by works so that no one can boast. You live in complete and total gratitude to the good giver of the good gift of grace. We are grateful. God has made you an heir simply out of his kindness to give you the kingdom. And so I just want to call you this morning to have a thankful heart for it to be filled with gratitude towards God for the freedom that he has given you in Christ and the inheritance that he has given you. But but I also see this in this passage. It's it's a weird one to mention as a passage, but I just, I'm going to go there. He says, man, I just wonder if it's in vain that I have labored over you. And he uses that word labor. I want for you to live in gratitude for the grace that you have received by faith, but I also want you to live in gratitude to your parents, if you had them, that labored in prayer over you and that shared the gospel with you. That's not all of our stories, but if it is yours, be grateful. Be really, really grateful. I, I wonder if there was a youth minister in the past that just, uh, that, <laughs> that just labored over you, that like, uh, uh, prepared really fun times for you to get together, but also like sober times to teach you how to uh, read scriptures. I wonder if God has worked in and through your spouse to reveal the kingdom to you. Be grateful. I wonder if he's worked through a pastor or a church or an institution or a ministry. Be grateful. Be thankful. There are lots of people that have worked and labored over your soul. Some of them, you may not even remember their names. Be grateful. Second, I want for you to know and understand something about redemption here. It says that Jesus came to redeem those who were under the law. Romans chapter 2 verse 23 says, You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking it. Jesus was born of a woman under the law to redeem those under the law. You are an object of mercy, not of wrath, simply because you have been redeemed by a redeemer. What does that mean for you? That means that you're, as an object of mercy, as a receiver of redemption, you get to go around helping God and participating with him in the revelation of his kingdom. You actually get to be a worker of redemption. You can bring order to your household. You can bring uh, some sort of like redemption to your uh, children's experience of holidays coming up. You can be a worker of redemption. I want to call you to it. Think about how you can go and redeem broken relationships, redeem things in this world that are broken. I saw this morning, even just on my way here, just uh, some some person had in these windstorms just a tree fall over against their house, and I was wondering, I wonder if they even have like the people to just redeem that little bit of brokenness, share the gospel with them. Maybe they do, maybe they don't. We can be workers of redemption. And last, I want to call you towards intimacy. You're no longer a slave just working in the house. You're no longer underneath guardians. You're no longer underneath some sort of legal law for you. Instead, you are a son and an heir to God. The Holy Spirit of God is in your heart And that means that you have infinite access to God. And so I want you to cry out to him, Abba, Father. I want you to know that you have intimacy, that you can have intimacy. I got myself in trouble. This is the last thing that I'm going to say this morning. I got myself in trouble uh, probably about uh, three or four months ago just confessing. It's hard for me to actually think about calling God Daddy. And I didn't communicate very well because the truth is is that I, I, I said that. I had uh, two people that came up to me and they were like, Hey, listen, I pray to daddy. And I go, Well, that wasn't really my point. I was saying that I didn't, I didn't say you shouldn't feel comfortable with it. I even cited this verse just going, You know what? Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, cries out in the garden, Abba, Father, if it is possible, just remove this cup from me. He has that kind of intimacy. He has that kind of wonderful intimacy with God the Father. And then here we see Paul actually saying, you have received a spirit of adoption that allows you to cry out with that kind of intimacy, Abba, Father. Know it, feel it, trust it. You have access to the eternal God. You have the spirit inside of you that is confirming your heirship in Jesus. Cry out to him, Abba, Father. Let's pray. God and Father, we thank you so much for your word this morning. We do not want to be ruled over by demons. We don't want to uh, follow religious trappings. We don't want to serve religious traditions simply for the sake of doing them. Father, we will head into Advent with joyful hearts, not thinking that it is a day or a month or a season or a year by which we are saved. But Father, we do confess that there are many times that we do try to earn our salvation. Father, would you help illuminate those for us? We confess them to you. Would you forgive us of those? Lord, would you help us to not live in bondage or slavery to the law anymore? Would we not be legalists? Would we not be Judaizers? Or would you help us to be free sons and daughters of the King forever? I pray this over this people. Help us to worship this morning as free heirs. Lord, we love you. We thank you for the the one person that made it all possible, our Savior Jesus. And so it is in his name that we pray. Amen.